Section 4 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Borden. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 2, Part 2. We paid two or three visits one year to the neighboring chateau and had one very pleasant afternoon at the Chateau de Pinon, belonging to the Corval family. W. had known the late proprietor, the Vicomte de Corval, very well. They had been colleagues of the Conseil General of the N, were both very fond of the country and country life, and used to have long talks in the evening, when the work of the day was over, about plantation, cutting down trees, preservation of game, etc., Without these talks, I think W. would have found the evenings at the primitive little Hotel de la Hure at Laon rather tedious. The chateau is not very old and has no historic interest. It was built by a Monsieur Bois, Vicomte de Corval, at the end of the 17th century. He lived at first in the old feudal chateau, of which nothing now remains. Already times were changing. The thick walls, massive towers, high, narrow windows, almost slits, and deep moat, which were necessary in the old troubled days, when all isolated chateaux might be called upon at any time to defend themselves from sudden attack, had given away to the larger and more spacious residences of which Mansart, the famous architect of Louis the Fourteenth, had left so many chefs-d'oeuvre. It was to Mansart that Monsieur de Corval confided the task of building the chateau as it now stands, while the no less famous Le Nôtre was charged to lay out the park and gardens. It was an easy journey from Beville to Pinon, an hour's drive through our beautiful forest of Villers-Cotterêts, and another hour in the train. We stopped at the little station of Anisy, just outside the gates of the park, a brougham was waiting for us, and a very short drive through a stately avenue brought us to the drawbridge and the iron gates of the Corps d'Honneur. The house looked imposing. I had an impression of a very high and very long façade, with two towers stretching out into the courtyard, which is very large, with fine old trees and broad parterres of bright-colored flowers on either side of the steps. There was a wide moat of running water, the banks covered with shrubs and flowers. The flowers were principally salvias and chrysanthemums, as it was late in the season, but they made a warm bit of color. The house stands low, as to all houses surrounded by a moat, but the park rises a little directly behind it, and there is a fine background of wood. We drew up at a flight of broad, shallow steps. The doors were open. There were three or four footmen in the anteroom. While we were taking off our wraps, Madame de Corval appeared. She was short, stout, dressed in black, with that terrible black cap which all widows wear in France, so different from the white cap and soft white muslin collar and cuffs we are accustomed to. She had a charming, easy manner and looked very intelligent and capable. It seems she managed the property extremely well, made the tour of the house, woods, and garden every day with her regisseur. W. had the highest opinion of her business capacity, said she knew the exact market value of everything on the place, from an old tree that must be cut down for timber to the cheeses the farmer's wife made and sold at the Soissons market. She suggested that I should come upstairs to leave my heavy coat. 
We went up a broad stone staircase, the walls covered with pictures and engravings. One beautiful portrait of her daughter, the Marquise de Chaponnet, on horseback. There were handsome carved chests and china vases on the landing, which opened on a splendid long gallery, very high and light. Bedrooms on one side, on the other big windows, ten or twelve, I should think, looking over the park and gardens. She took me to a large, comfortable room, bright wood fire blazing, and a pretty little dressing room opening out of it, furnished in a gay, old-fashioned pattern of chintz. She said breakfast would be ready in ten minutes, supposed I could find my way down, and left me to my own devices. I found the family assembled in the drawing room, four women, Madame de Corval and her daughter, the Marquise de Chaponnet, a tall, handsome woman, and two other ladies of a certain age. I did not catch their names, but they looked like all the old ladies one always sees in a country house in France. I should think they were cousins or habitués of the chateau, as they each had their embroidery frame, and one a little dog. I am haunted by the embroidery frames. I am sure I shall end my days in a black cap bending over a frame, making portiere or a piano cover. We breakfasted in a large square dining room, running straight through the house, windows on each side. The room was all in wood paneling, light gray, the sun streaming in through the windows. Madame de Corvel put W on her right, me on her other side. We had an excellent breakfast, which we appreciated after our early start. There was handsome old silver on the table and sideboard, which is a rare thing in France, as almost all the silver was melted during the Revolution. Both Madame de Corval and her daughter were very easy and animated. The Marquise de Chaponnet told me she had known W for years, that in the old days, before he became such a busy man and so engrossed in politics, he used to read Alfred de Musset to her in her atelier while she painted. She supposed he read now to me, which he certainly never did, as he always told me he hated reading aloud. They talk politics, of course, but their opinions were the classic Faubourg Saint-Germain opinions. A republic totally unfitted for France and the French. None of the gentlemen in France really Republican at heart, with evidently a few exceptions. W's English blood and education having, of course, influenced him. As soon as breakfast was over, one of the windows on the side of the moat was opened, and we all gave bread to the carp, handed to us by the butler, small square pieces of bread in a straw basket. It was funny to see the fish appear as soon as the window was opened. Some of them were enormous and very old. It seems they live to a great age. A guardian of the palace at Fontainebleau always shows one to the tourists, who is supposed to have been fed by the Emperor Napoleon. Those of Pinon knew all about it, lifting their brown heads out of the water and never missing their piece of bread. We went back to the drawing room for coffee, passing through the billiard room, where there are some good pictures. A fine life-size portrait of General Moreau, father of Madame de Corval, in uniform, by Girard. Near it a trophy of four flags, Austrian, Saxon, Bavarian, and Hungarian, taken by the general. Over the trophy, three or four lames d'honneur, presentation swords, with name and inscription. There are also some pretty women's portraits in pastel very delicate colors in old-fashioned oval frames. Quite charming. The drawing room was a very handsome room, also paneled in light gray carved wood. 
the furniture rather heavy and massive, curtains and coverings of thick, bright flowered velvet. But it looked suitable in that high, old-fashioned room. Light modern furniture would have been out of place. As soon as we finished our coffee, we went for a walk. Not the two old ladies, who settled down at once to their embroidery frames. One of them showed me her work, really quite beautiful. A church ornament of some kind, a painted Madonna on a ground of white satin. She was covering the whole ground with heavy gold embroidery, so thick it looked like mosaic. The park is splendid, a real domain, all the paths and alleys beautifully kept, and every description of tree. Monsieur de Corval was always trying experiments with foreign trees and shrubs, and apparently most successfully. I think the park would have been charming in its natural state, as there was a pretty little river running through the grounds, and some tangles of bushes and rocks that looked quite wild. It might have been in the middle of the forest, but everything had been done to assist nature. There were a pièce d'eau, cascades, little bridges thrown over the river in picturesque spots, and on the highest point a tower, donjon, which was most effective, looked quite the old feudal towers of which so few remain now. They were used as watchtowers, as a sentinel posted on the top could see a great distance over the plains and give warning of the approach of the enemy. As the day was fine, no mist, we had a beautiful view from the top, seeing plainly the great round tower of Coucy, the finest ruin in France. The others made out quite well the towers of the Léon Cathedral, but those I couldn't distinguish, seeing merely a dark spot on the horizon which might have been a passing cloud. Coming back, we crossed the Allée des Soupirs, which has its legend like so many others in this country. It was called the Allée du Soupir on account of the tragedy that took place there. The owner of the chateau at that time, a Comte de la Mothe, discovered his wife on two intimate terms with his great friend and her cousin. They fought in the Allée, and the Comte de la Mothe was killed by his friend. The widow tried to brave it out and lived on for some time at the chateau but she was accursed and an evil spell on the place. Everything went wrong and the chateau finally burnt down. The place was then sold to the de Corval family. At the end of an hour, the Marquise had had enough. I should not think she was much of a walker. She was struggling along in high-heeled shoes and proposed that she and I should return to the house and she would show me her atelier. W and Madame de Corval continued their tour of inspection which was to finish at the home farm, where she wanted to show him some Breton cows, which had just arrived. The atelier was a charming room, paneled like all the others in a light gray wood. One hardly saw the walls, for they were covered with pictures, engravings, and a profusion of mirrors in gilt oval frames. It was evidently a favorite haunt of the Marquises. Books, papers, and painting materials scattered about, the piano open and quantities of music on the music stand, miniatures, snuff boxes, and the little old-fashioned bibelot on all the tables, and an embroidery frame, of course, in one of the windows, near it a basket filled with bright-colored silks. The miniatures were almost all portraits of the de Corvals of every age and in every possible costume, shepherdesses, court ladies of the time of Louis XV, La Belle Ferronniere, with the jewel on her forehead, men in armor with fine, strongly marked faces. They must have been a handsome race. 
It is a pity there is no son to carry on the name. One daughter-in-law had no children. The other, born an American, Mary Ray of New York, had only one daughter, the present Princesse de Poix, to whom Pinon now belongs. We played a little, four hands, the classics, of course. All French women of that generation who played at all were brought up on strictly classical music. She had a pretty, delicate, old-fashioned touch. Her playing reminded me of Madame A's. When it was too dark to see anymore, we sat by the fire and talked till the others came in. She asked a great deal about my new life in Paris, feared I would find it stiff and dull after the easy, happy family life I had been accustomed to. I said it was very different, of course, but there was much that was interesting, only I did not know the people well enough yet to appreciate the stories they were always telling about each other. Also, that I had made several gaffes quite innocently, I told her one which amused her very much, though she could not imagine how I ever could have said it. It was the first year of my marriage. We were dining in an Orleanist house, almost all the company royalists and intimate friends of the Orleans princes, and three or four moderate, very moderate, Republicans like us. It was the 20th of January, and the women were all talking about a ball they were going to the next night, 21st of January anniversary of the death of Louis XVI. They supposed they must wear mourning, such a bore. Still, on account of the Comtesse de Paris and the Orléans family generally, they thought they must do it. Upon which I asked, really very much astonished, on account of the Orléans family? But did not the Duc d'Orléans vote the king's execution? There was an awful silence, and then Monsieur Léon say, one of the cleverest and most delightful men of his time, remarked, with a twinkle in his eye, Ma foi, je crois que Madame Waddington a raison. There was a sort of nervous laugh, and the conversation was changed. W was much annoyed with me, a foreigner so recently married, throwing down the gauntlet in that way. I assured him I had no purpose of any kind. I merely said what I thought, which is evidently unwise. Madame de Chaponnet said she was afraid I would find it very difficult sometimes. French people, in society at least, were so excited against the Republic, anti-religious feeling, etc. It must be very painful for you. I don't think so. You see, I am American, Republican, and a Protestant. My point of view must be very different from that of a French woman and a Catholic. She was very charming, however, intelligent, cultivated, speaking beautiful French with a pretty, carefully trained voice. English just as well. We spoke the two languages, going from one to the other without knowing why. I was quite sorry when we were summoned to tea. The room looked so pretty in the twilight. The light from the fire danced all over the pictures and gilt frames of the mirrors, leaving the corners quite in shadow. The curtains were not drawn, and we saw the darkness creeping up over the lawn, quite at the edge of the wood, the band of white mist was rising, which we love to see in our part of the country, as it always means a fine day for the morrow. We had a cheery tea. W. and Madame de Corval had made a long tournée, and W. quite approved of all the changes and new acquisitions she had made, particularly the little Breton cows. We left rather hurriedly, as we had just time to catch our train. Our last glimpse of the chateau, as we looked back from the turn in the avenue, was charming. There were lights in almost all the windows, which were reflected in the moat. The moon was rising over the woods at the back, 
and every tower and cornice of the enormous pile stood out sharply in the cold, clear light. End of section four.